0: Oh, and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode is a brand new segment focusing on legal and compliance issues surrounding alternative data. Once a quarter, Eagle Alpha's Director of Data Strategy and Analytics, Ronan Crossan, is joined by Peter Green and Ben Cousin from New York law firm Lowenstein Sandler. These conversations are part of Eagle Alpha's client only monthly legal workshops. In this episode, Peter and Ben discuss due diligence questionnaires materiality, and SEC examinations exploring whether the Reddit versus Wall Street controversy has had an impact on SEC visits. They provide updates from the HiQ versus LinkedIn web scraping investigations, as well as new developments in the Weather Channel versus the City of Los Angeles geolocation case. Please enjoy this dialogue between Peter Green, Ben Cousin, and your host, Ronan Croson.
1: So uh, these sessions really, we want to kind of reflect on, on what what we've been talking about over the last quarter, and you know what your clients um what your clients are interested in. and Maybe reflect on some of the, the investigations and cases that are open. Maybe Peter starting with you. I think in, in, in January we had Steve joining us from uh, from Two Sigma talking through the, the Two Sigma uh, compliance process. Any reflections on that? Any anything you thought was particularly insightful that, that Steve was talking to? Yeah. Yeah,
2: I think it's good to spend just a couple minutes on that. That's a good idea. So look, Steve runs, he would probably not like that word. He would say it's certainly a lot of people, and it is, but runs the data team on the legal side at, Ken, you probably agree, perhaps the largest, and I'm not speaking out of school at all, perhaps the largest consumer of data out there, certainly one of the most sophisticated. The Two Sigma folks have been data consumers and digesters for quite a long time, there's certainly industry and thought leaders in space, they see, you want to say, you'd think virtually every data set that comes to market, they probably get a look. They are that large and that sophisticated. Yet, or maybe because of that, depending on how you look at it, they're very large. They're also very careful. Two Sigma has a lot, as we heard, of policies and procedures in place to diligence from a substantive perspective, is the data going to be useful? And diligence from a compliance perspective, can we get comfortable from a securities law and privacy law perspective that this data is not going to land us two sigma in a headline that we're consuming personal, personally identifiable information or material non-public information in connection with the data we're buying? So they have robust policies and procedures, but I, I think what was great about Steve and great for the people on this call is Look, everyone's not two Sigma. Everyone doesn't have dozens of people that they can throw at this and millions of dollars that they can throw at this on inside and outside legal and compliance. But I think what Steve did was really break it down to a basic level for, hey, here are the building blocks everybody needs to some extent in order to put a data program together. And I, I know I don't want to take too much of our time and go through that here. But I think the takeaway there is everyone can't be two Sigma with their data program. But everyone needs, and we talk about this all the time, Ben and I talk about this all the time, if we're thinking about what would the SEC think, the SEC doesn't say that everyone needs the same compliance policies and procedures. The SEC says you need compliance policies and procedures that are tailored to your organization, that make sense for the size of your organization, and that you will actually follow. If, of course, everyone took Two Sigma's policies and procedures and implemented them, well, they wouldn't follow them because they just wouldn't have the resources to do it. And that's the worst thing you can do is have a set of policies and procedures and not follow them. Worst thing you can do from a regulatory perspective. So you need to design a program that is tailored to your organization. And that's where, whether it's compliance consultants or outside lawyers or inside folks come into play. And as Ben and I have been saying for probably about a year or two now, and we're and we're starting to see it now, we know the SEC now in routine examinations, says, Hey, what's your data program look like? How, what kind of data are you buying, and what are you doing to make sure that what you're buying is okay? And it's almost now becoming too late not to have really good answers to those questions.
1: I might just jump in there because you, you mentioned specifically the, the SEC investigations. It's probably a good point to put it in because that's. That got a lot of coverage in early last year that the SEC was increasingly focusing on alternative data. And I think when we spoke in December, you, you, you acknowledged that that's happening. But what are, you know, do you have any insights in, you know, what, what they've been asking specifically on the alternative data side?
3: Ben, you want to take it? You
2: want me to take- yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. So, so they're focusing a lot
3: on, on, as Peter noted, your policies and procedures and whether you're complying with those number one, and are they sufficiently robust? But the thing that seems to be the most uh, singular focus area that we hear repeatedly is they're focusing on, and this is not happening in every exam, but this is, you know, depending on the examiner and how sophisticated they are on these issues and how big the organization is and how much data is a focus for their investment platform, this is where these issues start coming up, which is how did you get comfortable that the data you received was was quote clean, in other words, and it you know did did you have some evidence that the chain of data from the origin source, the provenance of that data, to when you got it, has got the proper authorizations throughout that chain, and and they're you know reasonably or unreasonably saying you know well wh- wh- how, you know you can't just say yes, you have to say well how did you substantiate that? Did you get you know the contract from the the these the sources that. Provided the data to the person from which from whom you're buying it, did you know? Did you get okay? If they wouldn't give you the contract, were you able to get excerpts of those contracts that kind of makes it the data say that they're authorized to provide it to you in the way that that you're receiving it? And were those you know does that evidence that you receive then get married to the representations in the contract that you that you entered into with the data provider? Let me ask you yep. a question about that. So, Certainly. what does that mean? I know we both get the question a lot.
2: What does that mean for how far you, to take your link in the chain analogy? How like do I need to look at the contract from every link in the chain? I know we get this question all the time, and it's tough one to answer.
3: Right. So, this is a it's a really great question and a really tricky one because there's there are certain data providers out there that buy data from you know that you know from hundreds of data vendors and just are not going to uh, give you every single contract from every single supplier that they from which they receive data and not just from the suppliers but the supplier suppliers and so on and so forth they're not going to do that so look there's an element of reasonableness that you have to bring in judgment which is oftentimes why peter and i are getting involved in discussions with clients and helping them you know articulate whether that's in an internal memorandum and a memorandum from outside counsel depending on what the client likes to do and saying look here's how we got comfortable these are the things we looked at what to answer your question directly, Peter, some people may just get the form of agreement that the data supplier uses with its with all of its suppliers. And that form has to have the right reps. It's not a guarantee that those reps didn't get negotiated out. But based on your due diligence process, which we've talked about for almost over a year now, and how you get comfortable with data vendors, you have to, you know, this is just another additional step that it seems the regulators want want the the investment management industry to be taking. And it is it is cumbersome and it is onerous on the industry because but I think what we're seeing though, fortunately, and you know we've had a few clients who are undertaking some pretty robust re-underwriting of, of data. And you know in those instances, you know, the, the vendors are seemingly are much more willing to provide the backup. That we've been asking about without a lot of resistance, or at least some redacted version of it, because they understand now it's, it's, that the regulators are, are pressing on this issue. And, and, and now, an advertisement for law firms, and really not just for us. There are plenty of good law firms, as we've talked about,
2: handful who do a lot of this work and who do it well. Ben, so the, the your point I just want to pick up on the point you made about the, the memo from counsel. Some of our clients asked Ben and asked me, hey, put together a short one pager, do the diligence, call with the vendor, and send us a one pager for our file. Um, how do we feel about the advice of counsel defense with the staff, Ben? That when you have that type of memo in your file, Ben Cozen spoke to this data provider on this date, and here's why we, loan Stein, Stanley are comfortable that the risk here is low. That's sort of what our memo tends to say. Do we think there's value in that from a regulatory perspective?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Look, and and it's one of those things that you know we we try to be very thoughtful and careful about in terms of how we craft it. Um, and if we're not comfortable with a vendor, maybe I'll take I'll start with that, Peter. If there's some issue we've identified, what we're doing is we're making sure that we've talked to the clients about that before we r- write it in memos and and say something that would you know be a red flag, rather even though it's privileged. The idea is you you get comfortable enough and your are tab counsel or or internal external counsel or compliance articulate what all the steps you took and you know and then why you and then as a result of those all those steps you're now comfortable that that there's a low low risk of, of, of a compliance problem with that particular member and i think our expectation is in a direct answer your question is it is very helpful because the likelihood is you will you will waive the privilege and the sec says look you tried really hard you actually went to you know to an outside vendor or you actually took these 15 steps and you went took the time to articulate why you got comfortable the answer is the, the, the law doesn't require perfection. And you've heard me say this time and time again. The, the law requires reasonableness on, of your steps and reasonableness of your policies, procedures to try and prevent violations. And if you had, can show in a memo all the steps you took, things you looked at, did you do an adverse news or litigation search right on a vendor? And, and you could document that you said you did that. All those things definitely help in getting the SEC off your back from a situation if they have, think there's a problem with the vendor. You tried as best you could. You took beyond reasonable steps to go and figure out that this vendor was good or not good.
1: Yeah, yeah and I, I think I, that,
3: Ben that, put it really well. Done. I agree.
1: Yeah, that's certainly something. They, so I, I've no, I've no legal background, but it's certainly something I've taken from our conversations over time is, is the importance of having the the policies and and procedures in place. And uh, I to, just to, to highlight, I've been using that to make myself sound intelligent at, at cocktail parties. Uh, on the, and on it's the all yours, but. <laughs> You're always a nickel but, uh, every time
2: you say it, but it's all, all your.
1: Yeah, but no, it it is, and it's really important, and it's a really valuable insight is that you they're not looking for perfection, and it's not one size fits all. It's yeah. about showing reasonable effort and having the policies and procedures in place, and importantly, following those. And um, is is the focus in these reviews? Is is it always on the the initial data acquisition? That kind of upfront conversation, because I know again, Steve Steve talked a lot about the importance of ongoing review of data, but from the SEC invest examinations you've been um privy to or you're aware of, is to focus very much on that initial uh, in conversation, engagement, and onboarding of data.
3: I'll take it and then and then like Peter may have different you know additional points we don't think we're really gonna be different. But so the answer is no, it's not just about the initial. You know, th- that's the most important, but from what we're seeing and hearing, both seeing in our practice hearing anecdotally from clients, is they are saying Okay, but you know you have hundred vendors here. Yes, we see the last you know these memos on the ones that you just did. but why haven't you spoken to any of these other vendors in over a year that, and you're still using their data? And so there is, you know, if this is going to be a material part of your investment process, you have to build in not just a bring down certificate of the representations in the due diligence questionnaire, but I, it, it strikes us that they actually want you to be calling these vendors, and almost re-underwriting them after you know a sufficient period of time, and in instances when there are where there's news or other information in the public sphere, or that you hear from the vendor that would cause any reasonable person to say, "Well, wait a minute, this is this is a change, good or bad," and I need to evaluate this. Yeah, I only have one yeah. thing to add to that,
2: which is I think what we've seen is, is you can't just underwrite it every year important point if you are doing business with a vendor and then the vendor comes online with a new data set and you want to buy that new data set you've got to start all over on that new data set yes good we're comfortable with the vendor but we need to be comfortable with every data set and so when you buy something new from an existing vendor make sure you underwrite that something new
3: that's that's a great yeah. point it's yeah. a really important point so, yeah because that happens a lot <laughs> it happens a lot a lot <laughs> yeah, a lot and
2: the data scientists says, oh it's the same vendor. Great, I'm I'm clear here. They've got a new credit card panel or they've got a new point of sale panel from a new vertical and yeah, I'm gonna buy that. Ooh, n- not yet. We gotta see what the source is. You gotta check the data provenance on that. Maybe it's not the same. Often it oftentimes it is but every data set it, it needs to stand on its own from a combined perspective. Mm,
1: no, makes sense. We're getting a little bit of background on your audio, Peter. I'm not sure if you have a second audio on switched on. A question that's coming in uh, through the Q&A, and again, we, we encourage attendees to, to submit questions. one of the few opportunities for free legal advice. How often do you update your internal DDQ documents?
3: So if the que- I think the question is probably more about the, f- the form, you know, look, I think it's probably in the last couple of years been a little bit more frequent as the as this data usage is as is becoming more you know broadly used and it's evolved, an evolving space, but probably you know no more than, than twice a year, and most likely once a year, you know, is unless something's coming out of the industry that you learn about that would necessitate you wanting to ask questions about. Maybe there's a change in law and you want to understand how they're complying with that law, or there's a change in in market practice that you're hearing about or that the FTC is focused on. So outside of events that would trigger a typical reevaluation of your DDQ, oh annual review is probably the normal way to do it.
1: I agree. That's interesting, Ben yeah it's interesting if if you were to the, I, I think the the recommendation is is an annual check- in with vendors to make sure that they're, they're they're still aligned with you know your your understanding but clearly if you update your DDq in the interim, presumably then you'd be going back to vendors if there's a particularly new if there's anything particularly new that you're adding to your DDq or any new regulations, you may be going to vendors uh, earlier and asking some of these questions from your existing vendors. Yeah, so let, let me maybe make an easy example.
3: Let's say somebody had not engaged in web scraping as, and were had not you know, previously thought about it. So they were only just doing, you know, purchasing data themselves. And now they wanted to, you know, hire a, a web scraping firm. So there's a whole other host of questions you would ask about web scraping that you maybe didn't have in your initial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, a, yes. that's a, the example of what you might update your
1: DDQ outside
3: of the normal, outside
1: of the annual process. Mm-hmm. Okay, understood. So, so to my to, to my limited uh, expertise on on the SEC and, and these examinations, the, the focus traditionally would be very much on uh, MNPI and insider trading. The alternative data does raise the question of PII more prominently. But is it featuring in these examinations that the SEC ask about PII? I have we have not.
3: Yes, but the definite focus at least from what we hear both from clients and anecdotally is MNPI is the clear winner, so to speak, of, of the focal point, understanding where you're getting this data, that the data is clean and that you're essentially not getting on you know, that you're not getting data from somebody who was unauthorized to provide it to you. The PII is, you know, is a, is an important social topic for the SEC, but that's just not their core mandate as a regulator. So, they're not going to be, a, they're not as focused on it, although they do ask, you know, how do you get comfortable? But but clearly when we've, the, the exams that we're ta- hearing about and working through, it's, it is about how do you, ha- where's this information coming from and how and how, how do you, how do you get off comfortable with the authority of the chain?
2: Yeah, I agree. Look, it's just far and away the most important thing here. It always has been and it always will be. Privacy comes up in so many other areas of our practice, but I agree with Ben that the, the focus seems to be, and we think will continue to be on MNPS.
1: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I think it it feels like the data privacy and PAI side gets too much attention. If that's the right way to phrase it uh, in these conversations, and we're even conscious, we we had the conversation internally within our team that actually we were finding that a lot of our content was around data privacy because it is so topical. and There's so much going on in that area. So even given that intro, I, I agree with that. Data privacy,
2: but yeah. I agree with that. We we spend a lot of time on data privacy. There are all these laws at a state level. It's very complicated. There are certainly lots of missteps. We see phishing and breaches all the time. But but if you're a hedge fund manager, there is existential risk for your firm if you get it wrong on the securities laws analysis with respect to the provenance of data. There is not existential risk for your firm unless you just have a massive hack and breach. There is not existential risk for your firm from privacy. From, from, from a privacy perspective, with respect to just buying data, you want to be careful. Well, I'm not yeah. suggesting it's not important, but I think what Ben and I are saying is a distant second from a compliance standpoint.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was going to use that as a segue into a data privacy question, but uh, I, I'm actually going to go to the Q&A from the attendees. Is there any recent case law on materiality and data sources? I guess this is coming to the MMPI question.
2: Uh, I'll take this one. No. Look, there's still material. When we talk about um, MNPI in the U.S., the three elements of the crime, is it material? Is Is the data material? Is the data non-public? And how did you get it? Did you get it either by misappropriating it or receiving it in breach of a duty? When we talk about those three elements, we always say when we're talking to clients, whether it's in the data context or otherwise, materiality is the toughest one. It's really hard to say what's material and what's not. We've looked at data for years, whether it's survey data or counting cars and parking lots, whatever it is. You no, know, I think all practitioners, sort of Ben and I, have our, I guess in our mind a certain percentage for hey, if you've got a percentage of sales, a percentage of revenue, and you hit that percentage, we start to get nervous that it's material. I think for Ben and for me, it's a single-digit number. There's no law. There's no number in the law at all with respect to that point. It's just practice and judgment. Ben, what do you want to add on that?
3: No, that's that's spot on. And that, so the the answer is no. The short answer is no. There's no. Peter said. There's no right. changes I mean this is just the same but again it's it's just where you know the SEC is is focused on this. they put it in they're transparent right they put it in their exam priorities again from 2020 and 2021. so they're looking to find a case right how egregious you know it is uh, is going to be the what's going to be the one that's going to be somebody's going to get made an example of. and you know the firms frankly that have the biggest AUM and the most usage of data, probably have the highest risk of an exam and, and a risk of a footfall that that some examiner to, you know figure is going to try and make his career on and that's just practical yeah. right and that's you know it's not it's not necessarily about do, do, do you right or wrong they're just there to find something because you know that's well, yeah. what they need to do
2: like ben point is right yeah. any other area of life whatever it is the more high profile you become the more of a target you are for a whole bunch of things and this, this is a good example of that. That's not to say that if you're a $1 billion fund, you should throw caution to the wind, and have no data policies and procedures. It's just that we think the first case probably will have a pretty well-known brand name defendant on the wrong side of the V. When is that going to happen? I don't know.
1: Mm. You know I just, think so, I, I don't want to miss-
3: You know, one thing, Ronan, so on, that we kind of touched on when we say we should have policies and procedures. There's just want to you know, be clear about one thing. There's your, your firm facing policies and procedures for employees, right? And that those are generally oftentimes more broad principles. When we're talking oftentimes about policies and procedures, and Peter and I talk with clients about this a lot. There's also a second level of, of compliance desktop policies and procedures that the compliance function oftentimes has for going through and evaluating data vendors. And those are the more granular, you know, sort of pilots manual as to what you should do step-by-step step when evaluating a data vendor. And that is something that the SEC looks at. And that is something to consider if you are uh, building out a significant data program within your investment function uh, to make sure that you have that when compliance is involved, what they're doing, who's approving, uh, you know what things have to go out to the vendors, et cetera, et cetera. Because the SEC, you know, from what we know, is asking for those things and then checking against whether you follow that not just following your broad policy, because he just says you shouldn't trade on
1: MNPI. Mm. Understood, understood. And so in, in terms of the the, invest, the, the the public investigations or the legal cases that are open, what, uh, do, uh, maybe it's a good time to kind of touch on those and see if there's any any updates. I think the, the two most high-profile ones in recent years, the Yodi investigation and the Haiku case, any updates on those or any other cases or investigations we should be keeping an eye on?
3: We have not seen
1: anything
3: in respect to Yoli as a follow-up, right? Obviously, we had a change in administration since that occurred, since the Yoli letter came out of the Senate, and we had COVID. <laughs> so hard to know where that's going to come out. I'm, Peter, I don't think we've seen anything on the Supreme Court's granting writ on the, or cert, sorry, no. on the high uh, on, on Q. Yeah, case
2: yeah I, th- I think that's right last I last i checked there was still there was another case before the court that was being argued and some commentators thought the court was waiting on the high q case until it decided that other case and i believe that other case has not been I look back and look a bit has not been decided but you know from from a scraping perspective we can still consider the high q case to be good law the best law we have and it the market is still exactly. We don't have to say much more than this. The market is still where it's been running. Which is, if you're putting in a pass, yeah. if you're not putting in a password or username, we think you're on the right side of the line. And if you are putting in a password or
3: username to conduct a scrape, we think you're on the wrong side of the line. Hmm. And that is something, by the way, that the SEC, from what we know, is asked about for people that do web scraping. Interesting. Do you actually put in usernames and passwords? So they're pretty savvy on this stuff. There's people at the at the commission that have. You know, back in 2019, I think when we started these discussions, we mentioned that there was an exploratory kind of aspect going on at the SEC. People were just trying to learn. Then in 2020, that's when they started to really dig. And now that they understood what people were doing. The only other case that just got filed, and it's not really that related to the MNPI issue, is that there's a a class action case in California against the Weather Channel for violating privacy laws. Uh, in, in connection with the you know the geolocation tracking that they were doing if you recall that was the uh the case with with the district attorney's office in la county was filed and subsequently settled so that nothing there was no no rulings that that we could point to as precedent Please. right we don't know what happened right. yeah and but but now this class this is just a, this is not an mpi issue this is you know a private Dollar. action court cause yeah. of action by a group of Plaintiffs who were suing, saying, you know, you violated my, my, my privacy laws for uh, for tracking me using my weather channel. Yeah.
2: The only thing I'll add to what Ben said is, there's this myth out there that the SEC is not all that sophisticated. That's just not true anymore. The SEC gets; they might take a little longer um, to get there, just in terms of reefs from a resources perspective. But they're there. They understand data. They understand it's important, and they understand they need to look at it, just like any other type of information gathering conducted by. Buy side shops. They need to look at it to make sure they're comfortable from a, an MNPI perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the, the 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 Weather Channel class action. I guess is that similar in nature to the only class action? It's essentially a class action from individuals claiming that their individual privacy rights were violated. Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, it says you know the, the the case is saying they basically use their access, you know, to, you know to track minute by minute people and second by second where they were. Even when they had the app closed, and they were yeah. selling data to the third parties uh, in violation of privacy mm-hmm. laws, and so that's the that's the the claim that's being made. And you know, I think that's not going to be. This is not the first of these claims, right? <laughs> Just as though we have the, the plaintiffs' bar for securities lawyer securities law violation. You know, where issue where, where, where plaintiffs are suing or you know pursuing issuers. You know, this is going to be another probably area for plaintiffs' lawyers to. Yes, uh, cases against companies.
2: I don't know whether um, Ronan, yeah. is whether
3: you want to spend just while we're talking
2: about scraping, whether you want to spend a little time on um, from the January Reddit volatility. Let's characterize it that yes. way. Um, uh, that, what we've yeah, seen, question folks.
1: That just, yeah. What is it? Please, yeah, the question just came in there actually on that. Are the SEC do more house visits now in relation to data after Reddit, Robinhood, GameStop? So,
2: so look, say say the beginning part of the question again. I'm sorry, Ronan. Are the SEC
1: uh, sorry? Are the SEC doing more house visits now in relation to data uh, after just Robinhood, etc.? I think it's probably too early to 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 know about that. Whether there's
2: visits related to data as a consequence of that, what we do know is that across across the board, not across the board, but we we hear a lot that there are new data sets, and, and I think you all know this too, Ronan, that have come online to scrape, and it's not just Reddit, Reddit's just a proxy for a whole bunch of places, Reddit, Discord, um, Robinhood, other places, to scrape sites to see, hey, the retail investor group is talking about this name or that name, because if they're talking about a name in your book, you want to know. And so what that means is that internal data science teams are starting now to scrape those types of sites for ticker names, for um, people names for earnings for fund name, you know for anything that might be relevant to your book and we're also starting to see we saw immediately new data sets come online from external sources from vendors as opposed to internal data scientists to scrape those sites as well and that happens in real time and i don't think the um, proliferation of those types of offerings from vendors is going to go down it's only going to go up because certainly the hedge fund community has taken notice of the Reddit groups and the Discord groups and the Robinhood retail traders, and they want to know what they're saying. Ben? Mm.
3: I, yeah, I think that's, that's spot on. I, you know, I, I don't know that the SEC has done any more, you know, house visits or, or examinations. I think there's probably targeted, uh, you know, investigations that we don't know about because that would, you know, we, we don't, when the SEC is investigating, they don't usually tell the public. And so, yeah, I don't. I think Peter's exactly right. I think there's going to be more data sets, not only within these online sites, but also relating to short, open short interest and, and companies that provide that kind of data on, you know, seeing where the open shorts yeah. are in, in addition to the, the retail sites. It's just trying to get more clarity around that stuff. That's truly just market data. It probably already exists, just maybe people hadn't tried to sell it, uh, you know, as much as they... As broadly as they could. And there there are some there's some vendors out there that do that, like S3 that we know about that's been doing it for years, although I'm sure that they are gotten more mm-hmm. called now than they ever have in their in their history of the firm.
1: But yeah. Is it fair to say that the various district attorneys and the SEC are influenced by what's getting coverage in the media? So if we think about data privacy, we think about the example of Reddit Robinhood, et cetera, you know, the the headlines about you know your data being used. Is that do you, do you think that's actually influencing some of the investigations and in, that we're we're seeing? Well
3: the percent yes. I mean we, we have former we have we have partners who are former Southern district prosecutors and former SEC enforcement folks. Yes. The and they they will pretty honestly tell you yes it influences where their focus is.
1: Yeah. I wondered actually. So we talked a little, little bit about, or quite a bit about our January uh, workshop. But in February, actually, we had a f- fascinating workshop. We we were joined by a lawyer from a Beijing law firm, John he. Um Ben, do you have any reflections on that? I thought that was fascinating. There's a lot changing in China.
3: Yeah, that, that that's a really it's it's an interesting space there. It's it's so tricky uh, that the law seems to be, especially privacy law and 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 what the government views as state secrets and. Uh, and doesn't view estate state secrets, it is, it is an, a, a jurisdiction that has to be navigated very carefully. And I don't know that if I was sitting you know, back as an in-house lawyer again, that I wouldn't be speaking to a, a firm like Junhee if I was buying any data set in China and looking to you know, bring it, even, even if I'm in the United States, and the, and the long arm of the Chinese jurisdictional reach may not completely touch me. Uh, but, but nonetheless, you know, you don't want to find yourself in a very difficult spot, diplomatically or otherwise, uh, you know, by buying data that was, you know, what, what Marissa had for it was like sensitive data. And so, and, and then how you're getting it is even, even trickier, right? Or what people are, are allowed to sell gets down to, for example, uh, wh- where people may be tracking specific actual physical spaces are off limits and others aren't. Um, whereas you could track somebody maybe in a mall, but if that mall is near a government site, that's not okay. So I think uh, the, oh, that's uh, interesting. I, I miss I missed Ben's presentation. That's really interesting. Yeah. So the key takeaway is uh, tread with caution, uh, proceed with caution and, and engage engage with people, people in the market, because not only that, but the laws just every year. We spoke to Marissa, you know, you know, in 2019, then in 2021, which, you know, was like 14 months later, there's a whole new set of privacy laws that are coming out. They haven't been finalized yeah. yet, but they're coming out. And so it's a market that requires really careful uh, evaluation before you go jumping in there.
1: Absolutely. That that was one of the big takeaways for me, how quickly things have moved. Um, and we actually said we, we'll have to revisit that before the end of the year because I, initially I thought once a year was was fine to, to think about, you know, let's have a regional focus, but uh, things are really changing rapidly there and it'll be interesting to see how they um, the play out. Web crawling in particular was one that stood out for me and um, that... It seems, to a large extent, web crawling is prohibited within China. That was my layman's interpretation. Is that was that your takeaway as well?
3: Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's. I think that there's some narrow band that you can within which you can operate, but you shouldn't do it without getting counsel properly as to what you're doing, precisely what you're doing, how you want to do it, and see if there's any issues with that. But the government in China definitely has a focus on that, and they, you know, you it you, you can get shut down. Look, I mean, if you're buying this stuff from the US, I don't want to freak anybody out, and you know, and over be overly dramatic about it. It's just, you know, if you're doing, if you're trying to have a data consistent data program and data compliance program, um, across across all your your data sets, you know you shouldn't treat China differently just because the you know, jurisdictionally China, you know, is, is not gonna likely come after you by buying a data set in China. That doesn't mean, of course, that if you were prohibited under Chinese law from buying a data set and you bought it and you used it, and it was considered, as Peter said, material non-public information, and you traded ADRs in the United States that the US SEC could not make it make a case against you. So you know that's that's the important point, and that's why you want to focus on this stuff. You want to understand. Are you obtaining this data properly? So the SEC, when they say, "Well, how did you get comfortable buying this data set from China?" It's, it's you know, we understand and they they may be sophisticated. We understand that this is prohibited data to purchase from from a Chinese data vendor. You better have a good explanation if you didn't understand what what you were doing when you bought it.
2: Yeah, the only thing I'll add on top of that is, if you look at our rejection rate for vendors, it's pretty low now compared to what it was five years ago because the vendors, as we've discussed over the years, have cleaned up their act. They have compliance memos from outside law firms. They understand why they're being, they understand they will be asked these questions by the buy side. They understand why, and they understand they're not, gonna get to, they're not going to get to yes with sophisticated or even quasi-sophisticated buy side shops unless they can answer the data provenance questions. The one area where we've seen probably more rejection than other areas is web scraping from Chinese vendors. We've reject, you know, we reject vendors um, who web scrape in China who can't get us comfortable. And the only other point on top of that is, Um, Just like you think about your restricted list, if the SEC comes in and says, hey, can I see your restricted list? And you say, oh, there's nothing on it. No no issues. The SEC is going to scratch their head. It's great to reject a vendor. I know the data science team won't like it, but if you have a couple rejections in your file, it shows that there's an actual process and that it's not just perfunctory and that you do do a dive into data provenance. And so there's great value. I, this doesn't get stressed enough in my view. There's great value in actually saying no and keeping a file
1: on the nose. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that, that sounds like fantastic advice. The, it, 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 like, so the, the, the shifting landscape in China is really interesting. In fact, we we've, we've, we've seen one prominent data vendor that's no longer providing Data to clients outside of mainland China. So, and I'm not sure if it's Interesting. I don't think it's directly related. I don't think it's directly related to laws. It's just I think it's indicative of firms maybe getting a little little more nervous around, you know, what's what's permitted and what's not. We're coming very close to our cut off. Um, I'll just invite attendees again to submit any any questions they may have for for Peter and Ben. Peter, Ben, is, is there anything, anything that's coming up in your conversations that we haven't discussed? Any other common themes in the questions you're hearing? Ben, maybe you want to talk about how you're seeing managers
2: underwrite their whole portfolio, right? Like, what happens when a, a manager wants to take a look at its whole portfolio?
3: Yeah, I mean, we definitely are working on some of those uh, with some clients who have substantial data programs, and it's, it's a pretty substantial undertaking where to go back. And to reevaluate and send a fresh DDQ to every single vendor that you haven't had had a conversation with in over in a year plus, and re- reevaluating the contract, making sure that you didn't have anything slip through the cracks in terms of like the data team brought on a new product to the point Peter made earlier, but didn't necessarily run it through compliance because they just said, "Oh, if this is just the same uh, supplier, but you know, so we don't, so, the, so they're already approved." And then, you know, I think people are adding on some of these, you know, additional components to that evaluation, like running a, you know, a a adverse news or litigation search on a a company, on a vendor, and then making sure that they do have for each of those vendors, something in their compliance file that's fairly, you know, that's not like multi pages, as Peter knows, like a page that kind of just outlines the steps they took and memorialize it, whether it's privileged or not privileged, you know, it, it, I think it's helpful to have the outside law firm be involved, but that's not necessarily required. I don't want to sound like a, you know, traveling salesman about that. It's not necessary. As long as internally you have a, you know, somebody within the legal compliance function has, has done something similar that they could then, because your everybody's memory is short. So how did, you know, if an essay's asked about a particular vendor and you have a hundred or 200 of them, you're not going to be able to remember all of them. And that's why you have this memo. And the memo outlines exactly everything you did. And you could hand it over if you needed to to the SEC. And that's going to get you uh, a lot less pain when an examiner comes in and starts asking about your data, if you can keep track of it in that fashion.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, more great advice. Peter, Ben, we're just about at time. Thank you very much, as ever. Really interesting. We covered a lot in that short time, and um, but a lot of great insight. And uh, so we really appreciate you being so generous with your time and your expertise.
0: that's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening and please reach out if you would like to learn more about our client-only workshops and content. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.